This is Local Switchboard NYC, a women's audio collective. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jordan Gosporé. We're here to bring you news on a human scale. News that reminds us that big stories often start small. News that keeps us connected. And so there was this, I don't know, this sort of moan to the city that, you know, was, of course, that combination of grief and fear and confusion, and then, you know, ACT UP's deep commitment to rage. It's Pride Month, and on this show, we honor ACT UP. I discovered a plaque at the intersection of La Cienega and Santa Monica, which was the first plaque for transgender victims of hate crimes. And I thought, wow, the first. And if that's the first, how many others are out there like that in the world? And we remember the past by touching it. That's all coming up on Local Switchboard NYC. Noticed a few rainbows lately? It could be the weather, but it's also the month in which New York honors its queer history and the groundbreaking events, organizations, and people who made private shame into public celebration. One of these was the political action movement ACT UP, or AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. It was founded in 1987 in response to systemic neglect of the AIDS crisis and its early victims, many of them queer. The late playwright Larry Kramer was one of ACT UP's movers and shakers. Another was Robert Simber, an activist in the political, judicial, and public health sectors who also teaches at the New School in New York City. I spoke with Simber about his experience helping to shape this agent for change. So I came to New York City in late 1989. I had just come from Boston, and I had visited the city only briefly before. I moved to Washington Heights, very close to the George Washington Bridge. Um, And there were these very distinct sort of tonalities of the city. One was that kind of thrum, that sort of just the engine hum of a big city that was the accumulation of all of those sort of reverberations of just the constant sort of movement of the city. And I think for me, it was, you know, in those first years, it was really the, just the constant sort of engine sound across the George Washington Bridge, which of course the, you know, the resonant frequencies against the the bridge itself, but also against the the cliffs um, on either side of the river the Hudson River at that point. And then the other was just the sort of constant kind of music, the punctuations of the city, of people talking, of doors slamming, just, you know, just the business of the city um, as well. You know, as I think back, I mean, of course, this is very, very much a, a, a kind of nostalgic filtering of all of this and probably deeply colored by just 
the kind of emotional state I was in when I moved to the city was very stressful. It was a very intense time, but also um, a kind of des desperately seeking for some sense of security in the place. The city had a deeply anxious sound to it. There was something of profound consequence happening in the city at that point. I mean, it was a much more violent city than New York City is today. And certainly as a young queerer man, the sort of atmosphere of the AIDS crisis was everywhere and really defined, just defined what it was to be in the city and in community. And so there was this, I don't know, this sort of moan to the city that, you know, was, of course, that combination of grief and fear and confusion and then, you know, act up's deep commitment to rage, um, you know, to being united in anger, um, to fighting with desperation and with a certain kind of fearlessness, as, you know, the act up sort of statement is to end the AIDS crisis. During the pandemic, I remember I would go out, uh, I mean, I still do it various times, and I'll record different sounds around my neighborhood. And one of the moments that struck me was when people started banging on pots and pans and doing the, the bells and different things at the certain hour for the uh, first responders. And then hearing that, you know, going out one night around that time and not hearing it anymore was so startling to me and me wondering, why? Why did this stop? Like, I, I got so accustomed to it. So I was curious if there was a moment like that, not necessarily people banging on pots and pans, but a moment like that for you in 1989 that you could describe if anybody did anything to sort of recognize what was going on with the AIDS crisis and sound. Well, of course, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is the sound of actions, of the ACT UP actions. Down at City Hall, for example, there was an action that I was a part of where we blocked um, access to the Brooklyn Bridge. Um, and this was protesting what we saw as the inadequate response of the mayor at the time, Ed Koch, and Commissioner Joseph, the health commissioner um, at the time. Um, and, you know, there was um, the chant, ACT UP, fight back, fight AIDS, act up, fight back, fight AIDS. And it was yelled, you know, it was full-throated yelling that happened there. And then the other sound that comes to mind was the blowing of whistles. You know, many, many people would have these sort of penny whistles, these tin whistles, and would blow them to sound the alarm. And, you know, just the, the chorus of those whistles and, you know, of course, the city is just itself such an, a brilliant sort of amplification device, right? And so just hearing the waves of echoes moving back and forth and across the buildings and between the buildings, you know, was quite extraordinary. And that, I mean, it, just even remembering it now sends shivers through me. Um, that sense um, of battle um, and that sense of, solidarity and community, um, you know, really kind of extraordinary, kind of these sort of galvanizing moments that um, represent and are naming the moment, are saying this is our moment, but are naming it through sound. This is the sound of our moment. 
um, and that also announcing that we are there. So that, you know, that other great uh, uh, chant from that time, we're here, we're queer, we're not going anywhere. We're here, we're queer, get used to it. I do wanna just share with one chant with you, which I just thought was so camp and sassy and just brilliant. Um, there was an action that we did um, in Albany um, to, of course, protest. It was um, the first Cuomo, um, you know, uh, Papa Cuomo at that time, who was the governor. And we went up to Albany for a day of action. And um, the police were there, of course, in force, and they were wearing gloves, latex gloves. <laughs> So the chant broke out, your gloves don't match your shoes, they're gonna see you on the news. And that sort of just, you know, just that kind of queenie, satirical kind of fashion analysis that was happening in that moment. I, of course, it just cracked us up. It brought that kind of joyful levity. It was also another way of announcing our politics, our kind of sassy queerness. And it really confused the police officers. Like just like how, you know, it's one thing to be dealing with a sort of an angry mob. And here was this kind of, just this beautiful, playful, but serious performance happening. It was just a beautiful confusion. Um, and that, you know, the memory of that chant and just the laughing and then all of the variations as people would sort of elaborate on their, um, their fashion analysis, you know, uh, complimenting some offices and like reading them even more deeply in other cases, that's signature of what made us who we, what makes us who we are, you know, as a community, our, our joyfulness, our creativity, our wit. That was Robert Simber. ACT UP was created during a time of crisis. And we have just passed through another in which we learned painfully how to define ourselves by loss. Rituals are one way we honor and cope. And sometimes they develop a life of their own. Gravestone rubbing may date to as early as China in 300 BC. The art of generating images on paper from raised surfaces began as a form of documentation, but has become a decorative form in its own right. Stephen Rains has chosen to commemorate the AIDS crisis by collecting rubbings from the graves of its victims. I'm a poet and educator. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. I actually came out at a young age, or it seemed really young at the time, at around age 16. And I was um, horribly unpopular in high school, but thankfully I had a fake ID and that idea let me get into gay bars. And so it was a really interesting experience for me to um, be hated walking down the halls of school and then be really popular and have friends at night and on the weekends. And what was really nice about that is it made me feel significantly less alone. It also meant that a lot of my friends were also older than I was because they were legally at the bar and I wasn't. And so from them, I learned so much about LGBTQ history 
or just what it was like to live even um, a few years before me and being out. And I absolutely love St. Louis. Um, although I did leave um, as soon as I could at the age of, I think it was almost 18 years old. And I then lived in Florida for about 10 years. And then in 2005, I moved to Los Angeles where I've lived in West Hollywood since. Great. And then when, when you were 16 then, and when you came out, that meant that people at your school, your family, that they knew that you were gay. Is that correct? The people in my school knew I was gay. My family didn't really come out to my parents until later. And, you know, when I did come out, um, it, it was not a shock, but it was just something that it was so hard to grow. I mean, what I think what it's so easy to forget about as adults is how hard the coming out process was. I don't understand, but it seems like the coming out narrative is just mined over and over again in fiction and in, you know, and in any kind of story. And I think that's because it's such a troubling time, but also because it, it feels like it's really hard to kind of capture it correctly. There's so many nuances to it. And I'm, I'm actually kind of tired. I don't really watch coming out narratives at all anymore. Um, but it is, it is an incredibly painful time. And I'm in hopes that it's easier now for people. I think that uh, queer people are more visible, which also makes us more in danger. Well, it's interesting too that you you mentioned that, you know, learning about LGBTQ history from the folks that you met at the bars. And that's something that I've I've heard other folks talk about before too. I'm curious what kind of conversations that you had with the folks that you met at the bar about the history and how you learned about LGBTQ history there. You know, I learned from those men at the bars. I So the two things that were utilized the most in my life at that point in time were my fake ID and my library card. So um, I was at the library constantly. I was on a first name basis with the librarians. Um, there was even one who would suggest other books to me. So I, I did a lot of reading as well. And so I think that the introduction I got from the people at the bars were, it was maybe more cultural or social, recommending movies or musicians I hadn't heard of before. And so, you know, people need to remember this is early 90s. So this is before Spotify. Like you needed to like, you know, have that cool friend to recommend good music to you and recommend um, good magazines where you'll read about things that you wouldn't know about otherwise. And part of that recognition is that we've always been here. And I wouldn't have known that from the history books that I grew up with. And it was only about nine years ago, I live in West Hollywood. I live a very gay life. I'm in a wonderful liberal bubble. Then I discovered a plaque at the intersection of La Cienega and Santa Monica, which was the first plaque for transgender victims of hate crimes. And I thought, wow, the first. And if that's the first, how many others are out there like that in the world? And that's when I thought, oh, I, what would it be like to get rubbings of these? And then, and that was just the thought. It was really kind of this spontaneous combustion of an idea that for the gay rub, which is my participatory project where I collect rubbings of LGBTQ landmarks from a, 
from all over the world. You know, a lot of towns have markers noting, you know, where first things happen. I'm interested in those markers that denote LGBTQ people or historic events. And also part of the gay rub is a collection of gravestone markers. It's incredibly validating to have our experience etched in um, granite or in bronze. And I thought that through these rubbings, it's a way of telling queer history and displaying them all at once. What's amazing about it being a participatory project is that I mail rubbing supplies to people and they go to locations that they wouldn't normally go to on their vacations or in their own hometowns. And they get to experience history on a deeper level. And they get reminded of the people that were there before them. And they get to tell their friends about it. There's so many posts on social media, people doing rubbings. And it just, it really pleases me how big this project has become. There's over 350 rubbings. I can't even count how many times the exhibition has been displayed. It's really a great joy to share, you know, our, our queer history with people. I'm Jordan Gospore, and that was my interview with Stephen Rains. If you lost someone to AIDS, this Pride Month may be a good time to consider creating a rubbing. Many places in New York have Pride associations. We encourage you to discover the ones in your neighborhood this month. Artist spaces, bars and baths, groundbreaking organizations, and of course, Pride's epicenter, the Stonewall. Local switchboard Sarah Montague lives opposite this historic site and has these reflections. I don't get much sleep this time of year. Pretty well dawn to dawn because there's some serious partying during Pride Week. The sound outside my window mingles excited talk, chants, songs, rallies, and the combined voices of the hundreds of tourists who come to pay their respects each year. On Saturday, June 24th, there was a groundbreaking ceremony for the Stonewall National Monument Visitor Center, which will be located at 51 Christopher Street, one of the two locations that comprised the Stonewall Inn. When I look out my windows, I see the gaily, yes, that's the old-fashioned term, waving flags around the perimeter of the park, and when I step outside, it's a sea of rainbows, from trans to tourists to terriers, everyone is sporting something that says, I'm proud, and so we all ought to be. For Local Switchboard NYC, I'm Sarah Montague.
I'm Jordan Gospore, and you've been listening to Local Switchboard NYC. Our team is me, host Jordan Gospore, and reporters Sarah Montague, Betsy Lakin, and Heather Chen. You're part of our neighborhood now. So if there's a local story you think is important, let us know at localswitchboard at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>